Well, good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be with you all in the house of the Lord this morning. Celebrate communion together. Give thanks for a great Savior and His deep love, and that in Christ alone we're in good hands. Special greeting to all of you joining us online this morning. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. I pray that wherever you are, the Spirit of God is stirring your heart like He is stirring our hearts here. And as we turn now to Matthew 17, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word. And let's study the Word of God together. A story comes from the life of missionaries Robert and Mary Moffat. And it illustrates the truth, the double truth that faith, true faith, honors God. And God honors true faith. The Moffats were missionaries, he from Scotland and she from England. And they pioneered gospel work among unevangelized people in southern Africa. And for 10 years, they labored faithfully in Bekuana land, which is now known as Botswana in southern Africa. For 10 years, they labored without one ray of encouragement to brighten their way. They could not report a single convert. Finally, the director of their mission board began to question the wisdom of continuing the work. But the thought of leaving the post brought great grief to this devoted couple, for they felt sure that God was in their labors and that in due season they would see people turn to Christ. And so they stayed on, faithful to the Lord and his call on their lives. And for another year and a half, darkness reigned. And then one day a friend from England wrote them and said he wanted to send them a gift. What would they like? And trusting that in due time God would bless their work, Mary Moffat replied, send us a communion set. I am sure it will soon be needed. And God honored that woman's faith. The Holy Spirit moved upon the hearts of the villagers, and soon a little group of six converts was united to form the first Christian church in that land. And the communion set from England was delayed in the mail, but on the very day before the first commemoration of the Lord's Supper in Bekuana land, the set arrived. God is honored by true faith, and true faith is honoring to the Lord. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus talks to us about the importance and the power of faith in the living God. Jesus and the three men who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration are coming back down to rejoin, as it were, normal life. We've seen in recent weeks that they need to come back down from that mountaintop experience back into the ministry that they would have among the people below. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. But as they come back down, undoubtedly Peter, James, and John are talking with each other, but they're told by Jesus not to talk about this great experience that they've had on the mountain until Jesus has risen from the dead, until he has had the opportunity to show them what kind of Messiah he is and what he must do to bring about God's plan. Then they'll be able to talk about that majestic and wonderful experience of seeing Jesus in his exalted state. Well, as we think of the theme of honoring God with true faith and true faith that is honoring God, I invite you to stand as we read our scripture passage for this, from this morning from Matthew 17, verses 14 to 20. And the precious and true word of God says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. 
for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord given to us to instruct us about the nature of true faith. Let us receive it with that intention this morning. Please be seated. And let us pray. Our God and our Father, we turn to you now in these moments and we thank you that we can trust you, we can lean upon you, we can lean into you, and you can teach us through your word as your spirit gives understanding and opens our minds and hearts. So, Father, we bow our knee and our hearts before you this morning and say, teach us through your word for your glory, for the good of our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me just get to one thing, address something of importance right away that perhaps you've noticed, and I want to just get it out of the way so we can move on to the text we have this morning. Perhaps some of you this morning have an older translation of your English Bible, and you have a verse 21 included here. And you're asking, well, why didn't I read verse 21 this morning? And the reason for that is that in the earliest and best manuscripts that we have, it was not included, and so I don't think it was included in the original of Matthew. But nothing is truly lost, because elsewhere in Matthew, we can study about prayer, we can study about fasting, we can study about demons, and so we have everything that we need to hear. But secondly, it's just a reminder that we've known about these kind of issues for years, and, and we study about how the scriptures came about, how we received them from the time God superintended them, and as he's watched over them, and the manuscript evidence that we have. And so there are good answers for why these things have come up. They're available. They've been around for a long time. I'd be happy to point you to some good sources. But with that, as we assess what is going on in this text, let's get into the text that we have before us this morning, Matthew 17, verses 14 to 20. If we go back to Exodus chapter 32, Moses came down the mountain after an amazing experience with the Lord where he was given the tablets, the Ten Commandments. And as he's descending, he encounters a rebellious people against God, lacking faith in him. And he expresses anger and dismay at what he encounters, even slamming the tablets to the ground. Well, this morning, in the passage that we're looking at, we have the one to whom Moses pointed, who has just had an amazing experience on the mountaintop where he has led three of his disciples into an amazing experience. He's coming back down the mountain and as they do, they encounter a crowd that is rebellious and unbelieving. And Jesus expresses dismay at what he encounters. Jesus understands our situation. He has fully entered into our humanity. But is also one who is truly the prophet of God. He knows the hearts of sinful men and that they are continually against the Lord. 
Now, you recall a few weeks ago that it was the first wishes of Peter that they stay on the mountain, that they stay in the midst of this wonderful experience, wanting to build three tents. And we, we saw the problems that were with that suggestion. They must come back down the mountain. And it might be that in our own lives, we've had the privilege of having wonderful encounters with the living God. We've had those mountaintop experiences. We've experienced great things. We've had great teaching. We've had great fellowship. It might be on a weekend retreat. It might be on a marriage retreat. It might just be a great home Bible study. But we know that we can't stay on the mountaintop, no matter how pleasant it is, because we're called to go back down the mountain so that we will grow in our relationship with the Lord, so that we show our obedience in a sinful world, so that we will be a blessing to those that are walking in darkness that we can show them the pathway to light. And the disciples are going to learn that lesson this morning. And as you follow along and your Bible's open in front of you or on your tablets, I encourage you now to take notes as we get to our first major point, which is a great disappointment. A great disappointment. And our text begins. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Now, it's been a few chapters in our study in the Gospel of Matthew since we've, we've seen miracles. They're bunched together at different places throughout the Gospel, and it's been a few chapters but it seems that while Jesus and these three men were up on the mountaintop, having this wonderful experience, seeing the, the majestic and exalted Christ, that during that time, a man had approached the, those that remained down below and approached them about healing his son, who was afflicted. But to his great disappointment, they were unable to help him. And so as Jesus and the three men are coming back down the mountain, they see a crowd gathered and notice a man comes and kneels before him and calls him Lord. What a display of reverence and submission. Indeed, he has some understanding of that Jesus can help. Perhaps he's heard the stories about what Jesus has done. Perhaps he's met some of the people that have been touched by Jesus. And even if he doesn't have a full understanding of who Jesus is, because after all, the apostles yet don't have a full understanding of who Jesus is, he still knows that if he, co if he comes to Jesus, there is the possibility of help. And he gives us a good example this morning. If we find ourselves in need, we come to Jesus. We come to him with humility and respect, with, with adoration and recognition that he is the Lord, with recognition that he is the Savior, that he's kind and merciful. We, we don't come boastfully as if we have a right to demand anything from his hand. But we can still come with expectation that he will respond because that's in his nature he wants to respond and show his kindness and love to his people. So this man helps us to recognize that we should always recognize Jesus as Lord and kneel in reverence before him and ask for his hand of favor in times of need. And what does he ask Jesus? He says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Once again, someone is bringing someone in need to Jesus who is able to meet that need. The father gives the diagnosis of the situation. He says he is an epileptic. Now, there were many conditions in, in ancient times that could have been referred to as an epileptic, but just by itself, epilepsy is a terrible disease. 
therefore it affects the brain waves, the reactions, the emotions, the ability of a person to move and manipulate his body as he desires. But what's interesting is this word that is rendered epileptic in my version here of the English Standard Version is rendered in other versions by the word seizures. The word itself, sereniazomai, from the Greek means to have twitching or seizures. It's connected to the word for moon, selene. So in the past, a person with this type of condition was said to be moonstruck, which means that they were rendered crazy. Those who were moonstruck had epileptic seizures. They had different types of conditions that would show they were not in control. And that's why some earlier English versions, borrowing from the Latin word for moon, which is luna, translate this word as lunatic. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. Well, whether we decide it's epileptic or one who's having seizures or one who is in a dangerous mental condition, this boy's in trouble. And we're not given his age. We're just told that he suffers terribly. Imagine not being able to take care of any proper needs around meals or taking care of personal hygiene because he's constantly falling into the fire, constantly falling into the water. His life seems to be in constant danger because of lack of control over his motor skills. And certainly he's manifesting symptoms, at least with, with data that we have, that's consistent with epilepsy. But we're told there is an underlying condition we have to go down to verse 18 to see that, where we see that this boy is also under the influence of a demon. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And in verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. The account found in the gospel according to Mark is lengthier. It gives us more details, but it, it contains the same idea that there's a double meaning here. There is a physical condition. There is a spiritual condition. This demon is influencing this child, bringing harm and harm again, and he is determined to destroy this child, and that is consistent with the activities of the evil one. For Jesus himself, making a contrast between what he does and what, what the enemy does, in John chapter 10, verse 10, says, The thief, the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And sometimes in our Western minds, where we want to separate the physical from the metaphysical, the spiritual from the natural, we forget that there is actually an interplay between the physical and the spiritual. That there is an interplay between these two realms. Not everything can be proven in a laboratory. Not everything can be shown by a scientific argument. Not everything is re rendered simply down to philosophical discussion. There are certain questions that are outside of the domain of these disciplines that require a higher source of ultimate knowledge and ultimate truth, namely God himself, the creator, who understands all of these domains. And through Jesus has created all things, and therefore Jesus, the one who has all authority, is able to help and interact in all of these domains. So we begin with a great disappointment, and then we see that Jesus experiences a godly dissatisfaction. A godly dissatisfaction. The father of this boy is desperate. Any parent that has a sick child can certainly relate to the anxiety that this man is feeling at this point. And he has brought, them, he's brought his son to these apostles whom he's heard can perform miracles and he asked for healing and for prayer and they could not heal him. We're not told exactly here what the disciples tried to do. We only are told this man came to them and they failed. 
which causes us to do a little background. What happened here? Because in Matthew 10, they had been given this very authority as Jesus sends them out on their first missionary journey, kind of as a trial, as they go out, he says, I give you authority to go out and heal the sick and cast out demons. And it's implied then that they did, that they had some experience in performing these kind of miracles, that they healed the sick, they set those oppressed by demons free. Perhaps, however, they'd fallen into a habit thinking this was something automatic. But whatever the reason, they didn't do it here. They couldn't do it here. That's a larger sign then of the generation of Jesus' day that didn't fully understand who he was, what his authority was, what he came to do, what he would accomplish, who he is really in the fullness of his majesty and nature. And so Jesus hears that his own disciples couldn't heal him. And so we get to his reply, response in verse 17. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear, bear with you? You can almost hear Jesus sighing as he says this. He's the son of God, and yet he's frustrated with his, the people of his generation who are not fully understanding and believing in him. Yes, they wanted a healer. They wanted a miracle worker. They wanted a military liberator. But they didn't recognize who Jesus was. Didn't recognize what, it, what the true nature of the Messiah would be, the true nature of the Savior. So Jesus is experiencing exasperation with them. For he knows who he is. He knows he's been sent by the Father. He knows that he's been sent for a very specific reason, to accomplish the plan of God, for the redemption of the people of God. And doing so, he entered fully into our humanity. Jesus experienced the fullness of human emotion. He felt sorrow for the sick, sorrow for, in the words of the Bible, the crippled. He grieved with those who were mourning. He was angry at sin and injustice and self-righteousness. He despised hypocrisy. He loved people and showed and demonstrated that love. He was able to express the full range of human emotions with one major difference from us. He did it without sin. So he could express love, express anger, express indignation, express joy, express righteousness, and do it yet in a perfect manner, consistent with one who is the Son of God. But he's been living among these people, and he is exasperated by their lack of belief, by their rebellious spirit, and he hears the story of this man who comes for healing. Is he going to come for anything else? After all, we've already seen many times in the Gospel of Matthew, people come to Jesus just to get what they can get. And his own disciples fail in this moment. And I just wonder at times with what the disciples knew, what they had already seen, why is it that still they have a hard time understanding and putting into practice obedience and application of the truth of God's word But then I wonder about myself and I wonder about us, we who have been exposed to even more information, who know more about the Lord, who have the full revelation of God's word. And is the Lord ever exasperated with us by our lack of faith, by our lack of obedience? Jesus refers to this people as a faithless and twisted generation. And he's already made several similar declarations in the Gospel of Matthew about the people of his day. But what I find interesting, you recall I started with Moses coming down the mountain in Exodus 32. As Moses is seeing what's going on in the valley below, he uses a similar description to describe what the people of Israel are doing. 
In fact, God himself uses the same expression in Numbers 14. We see that this has been a common problem of the people of Israel, that continually are a faithless and twisted generation. And here we have Jesus then as the true and final and ultimate prophet, thundering the judgment of God against the people of Israel in the first century, calling them faithless and twisted. They're faithless because they're not trusting in God. They're putting their hope in other things, whether in their own strength or their own traditions or their own customs, but they're not fully understanding God and his ways. They're twisted because they're actually perverting the things of God. The word here could actually be translated as distorted. This is a distorted generation. They're distorting the things of God. In R.C. Sproul's commentary on this passage, he said, it's a generation that has embraced vice and ridiculed virtue. And as the events of the cross come closer, the vanity and shallowness of that generation, as demonstrated by the reaction of this crowd, will become ever more clear. But I think this is something that is a temptation. It's an ongoing temptation of every generation since that generation. Because just one full generation later, as the Apostle Paul is sitting in a Roman prison and as he's writing to these different churches, he writes to the church in Philippi and pay close attention to the words of what he said in light of what Moses experienced on the mountain, in light of what Jesus experienced on the mountain. This is what Paul writes to believers. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In fact, there was no difference between the people of Moses' day or the people of Jesus' day or the people of Paul's day, and I would even say the people of our day. I think we would all agree that we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So how are we living then in consequence? Are we living in such a way that we stand apart, that we're the light, that we're shining the pathway that will lead people home? Or are we living in ways that are very similar, if a little different, than those that are part of this wicked and twisted generation? Our generation is also a generation that celebrates vice and mocks virtue. Is that ever true of us? Let's take heed, my friends. Hear the warning and then hear the promise. The promise is what we celebrated at the table this morning. We were like the man on the left, full of shame and regret, long gone in the wrong way of living. We were like the one on the right, always looking for a fight, not knowing if we could be forgiven. I know the one who paid the cost. Thank God for the man on the cross, middle cross. And as we do that, let that empowering us, it sets us free to not have to live like the world around us. But we can live in a way that is honoring to our Lord. But here we have Jesus, the Son of God, who's come to live among the people of first century Palestine for a, for a generation, for 30 years of his lifetime, and he's lamenting, how long? When will you get it? When will you see? How much longer must I endure with you? There's a lamentation here that we see in the Psalms, that we see whenever there is a failure to recognize righteousness and walk in it. Now, is Jesus saying here there's something he doesn't know? I always use one of these verses to say, well, there's something that Jesus doesn't know. He doesn't know how long he's going to be there. To ask the question, this is the point. 
He's giving a lamentation. He's frustrated. He's exasperated how people are responding to him in their understanding. He has to live, as it were, among these spiritual pygmies, longing that they would come with spiritual understanding one day. So he offers a sigh of exasperation and a godly dissatisfaction. But then it's time to snap into action, and so we see our third point, which is a grand deliverance. A grand deliverance. And in verse 17, Jesus says, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Now, it's interesting that the command here in the original, bring him here to me, is in the plural. So that means Jesus is talking not just to the man, but to those around him, perhaps even some of the disciples that remain there. Bring him here to me. It's a good example. Every one of us knows people who need Jesus, who have a need that only Jesus can meet, and we have the opportunity to bring them to Jesus in our prayer life, to bring them to Jesus in our thoughts, to bring them to church, to bring them to the Gospels and study together. Now, I give this man some credit. He persevered. He showed some faith, because think about it. He had come to the disciples and said, could you heal my son? And they can't. You can imagine what his reaction might be, but he doesn't give up. What he, he comes to Jesus now, and he says, they couldn't do it, but have mercy on my son. And then, when he comes to Jesus and says, have mercy on my son, he listens to the command of Jesus and says, bring him to me. I like that. The man was willing to listen to what Jesus would tell him to do. He came to Jesus without condition and said, heal my son. And then he responded with exactly what Jesus told him to do. He didn't say, well, let me think about it. That might be a difficult path. I don't know if I could do that. He just did it. He came and said, Jesus, help me. Is this what you want? Okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then in a very short description, it's much shorter in Matthew than it is in, in Mark, and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. We see the interplay between the physical and the spiritual, and that Jesus is, has authority over both. We don't talk about it much in our world today, because it seems so old-fashioned. But the demonic realm is real. There is a real spiritual world. There is a real spiritual opposition to God. Demons are affecting what goes on in the world today. They can even affect what happens to people. But Satan is not equal to God, so don't give him too much credit. He's a created being who still serves the purposes of God. But we need to recognize that sometimes when we're dealing with people and their conditions and the things that they're struggling with, that sometimes there is an interplay between the physical and the spiritual. There is an interplay between the sinful nature of man and allowing ourselves to listen to lies. And it might affect us emotionally. It might affect us in areas of addiction, drug addiction or pornography or fits of anger or other attitudes. There can be an intermixing between these two realms, and that's why we treat people holistically. And we address them in all areas of their being, not just in one area or another. And that Jesus is the solution to all of the different realms and domains that we have in our lives spiritual, relational, physical, emotional, intellectual, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he alone has that authority. Well, at his command, the demon came out. 
Once again, we see we don't have a big power play. We don't have a big presentation. We don't have a big liturgy. Jesus just heals the boy with a word. And amazingly, he heals him in a moment. It's not said directly here, but it's certainly implied that this was healing that was both physical and spiritual. It was a spectacular display of divine power and authority. Jesus shows who he is by what he does. I wish Matthew had given us a few details at this point about what the reaction of the father was, what the reaction of the boy was, what the reaction of the crowd was, what the reaction of the religious leaders who might have been looking on. We don't have that. We just know that with the word and in a moment he healed this boy. But we can imagine the joy, the relief, the hugs, the tears of joy at a life that has been put back together. It's been a grand deliverance. And then next we see a good debriefing. A good debriefing. Verse 19 says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? They're dumbfounded. They know they'd been sent out to do this type of ministry, and, and they have performed this type of ministry, but here they failed. And Jesus, ever being the good teacher, is going to take an opportunity to teach them. And notice he does it here privately. The failure was public. The, the display of the miracle was public. But here Jesus is interacting with them privately. They admitted that they had failed. They wanted to know why they had failed. They went to the one to whom they could ask the question about why they failed. And it's good for us then, not if we fail, but when we fail, to go to Jesus. Because he's the one that can actually do something about our condition. The one that can actually help us, disciple us, teach us, train us, coach us, help us. And so let's, let's just do that. In our own weaknesses, and our own challenges, just go to the Lord. And recognize where the blame lies with us. Because we're the ones that make the bad decisions. We're the ones that say the wrong things. We're the ones that, do, that don't do the wrong things. Our failures are a lack of our faith and not the lack of others. And make sure you're putting your faith in the right thing. On April 30, 1976, Evelyn Moores attached a repelling rope to a drain pipe grating on the roof of the Mark Twain South County Bank in St. Louis, Missouri. Morris was an experienced climber, had even climbed Mount Rainier, 14,000 feet. This repelling exercise from the bank building should have been routine, except for one miscalculation. The drain pipe grating wasn't anchored. And numerous bank officials and their friends watched as Morris plummeted to her death. Her faith in the grating was wrongly placed, fatally misplaced. Why did the disciples fail? They had put their faith in the wrong place. They tried to do something, but they had failed. So they come to Jesus, why, why did we fail? Why could we not cast it out? Perhaps they were expecting a comment about their technique. Oh, you need a little more training. You need to go to a course. Perhaps they would would hear something about what was the secret, what was the key. But Jesus gives them a different reason. He says, because of your little faith. And once again, in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus using this expression similarly, oh, you of little faith. It's Jesus' way of saying, you don't really believe who I am, do you? You don't really believe that I can do all that I claim to do. You don't really believe that I have authority over everything. 
You're putting your faith not fully in me, but in yourselves. Were they trusting in their abilities and their talents and the fact that, hey, we're apostles. Hey, we're chosen by God. We've done this before. We can do it again. We can get in the routine of, of doing ministry. And I think there's a warning there where we need to be aware of putting our trust in whatever we might have. Talents, gifts, abilities, training, experience, exercises, whatever it is. Because all that we have received comes from the Lord. And all that we've received from the Lord then is to be used for the Lord's purposes. And so we don't want to ever go out on a limb on our own power and our own faith and our own abilities and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this. We, we do what we're called to do because we know it's the Lord that's leading to do it. And then we lay all of our resources at his feet and say, use them for your glory. My faith is completely in you. So we can have a confidence in ministry. We can have a confidence in life. But it's a confidence that is rooted in God and the confidence of who he is and through nothing that we can do ourselves. I know that it's very possible for us to go through the motions, to do the right thing. Might even think we're doing it for the right reasons, but we're not doing it because we're trusting the Lord. The late Dr. James Boyce reminds us that there are no shortcuts to spiritual authority. So it's not a ritual or routine or a tradition or a talent that we can depend upon. True success in ministry comes only through faith in the Lord who gives us all things. Faith in the Lord who can do all things. Faith in the Lord who promises to guide us and to be with us and to use us. But he's also the Lord who is blessed because he gives and because he takes away. And we must never be presumptuous about his grace, never be presumptuous about his gifts, but always trusting in him so that it not be said of us that we have little faith. And that brings us to our last point then, which is a glorious declaration. A glorious declaration. The disciples are learning, and they'll learn again. And we, like them, must learn again that we need the Lord and his power. We need to learn afresh, daily, ongoing, the truth of John 15, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And we have to abide in the vine if we're going to see fruit produced in our lives. And we wake up every morning and we say, Lord, not my will, but thine. We commit to him the plans of the day, the energies of the day. We ask him to be guiding us through the day as we lay everything in his hands. And we walk and say, Holy Spirit of God, guide me that I abide in the vine and get the truth and power from our Lord. That brings us to verse 20 then, where Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus loves to use illustrations from daily life to make his point. He uses the smallness of the seed and the greatness of the mountain to show the the true nature of faith, or you could say the nature of true faith. That small faith is focused on the right thing can cause great events to happen. After all, a mustard seed is small, but it represents true faith. And Jesus is trying to make the point that it is not the amount of faith that we can muster that makes the difference, as if somehow we can turn up our heart or just say, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. It's the object of our faith that makes the difference. Big faith in a little God 
will not accomplish much. But little faith, that is true faith, in a big God can accomplish a great deal. You see, faith is not an amount. It's not a commodity. It's not something we can accumulate. Faith is a relation of trust in the living God. It's a personal relationship where we know God, we hear his word, we, we, we memorize his word, we put it into practice, we take in that his word, we know him, and when he says to do something, we do it because we've learned we can trust him. Faith is a relationship of trust in the living God. And small faith, but true faith in a big God can accomplish a lot. Because if you say to this mountain, move from here to there, it'll move. Now, we know this is a rhetorical device, not meant to be taken as a little promise. It was a proverb, a metaphor that was common among the people of Israel, meant to overcome obstacles that were difficult so that something great could be accomplished. And in Christ, we're able to move the mountains of the world that oppose the expansion of the gospel. And we can see those mountains fall as we obey God and preach the word. That's why we send out missionaries. That's why we distribute Bibles. That's why we promote ministries that are preaching the gospel because the word will go forth and it will be effective. But it will be effective not because of the strength of our faith, but because of the strength of our God. And so we need to be careful then of the false gospel of the prosperity preachers or the name it and claim it crowd. They like to use this verse. Oh, if only we have enough faith, we can cause great things. And they even have books out that say, have faith in your faith. I don't know if I want to have faith in my faith. I want to have faith in God who gives me faith. But they end up in all kind of abstractions and aberrations from the gospel by turning it into us. Have faith and your faith. Now Jesus clearly says here we're to have faith in God. True faith in a mighty God. Because ultimately, it's Him who provides the power, who gives the miracles, who does the great things, and then as a result, who gets the glory. It's not because of the strength of our faith, but the strength of our God, who is ultimately trustworthy because He is faithful. Like when Jesus gave the word and the demon left. So a word saying, Jesus, help me, can cause mountains to move because he will be the one that will move them. But often in our lives, we, we might not see the great things that we aspire to see. We see strongholds in people's lives. We see rebellious hearts. We see lack of provision. And why is that? And perhaps God is trying to bring us through a school where he's trying to teach us to say, look, you're continuing to look for your own solutions, your own salvations, your own applications, and what I'm asking you to do is have faith in me, and so you're not seeing the great things that you want to see because of your little faith in the wrong things. Now, what Matthew doesn't have in his account, but Mark does, is the reply of this man who brought his son to be healed. And Jesus says, if you believe, it will be possible. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And I think that is the prayer request of every growing Christian because we do believe, but we need to grow all the more. We need to help, ask him to help us to trust him more. I do believe, Lord, but I still need to grow. So help my unbelief. And it's that humble prayer before God that is asking him to help us so that he gets glory that he is willing to respond to and is willing to teach us. And when then we have faith in the living God and say move, the obstacles will move. And Jesus says, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible because it is the object of our faith that is powerful, not the measure of our faith. I like what Charles Spurgeon says on this. He says, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And I think we desire to experience all that God has for us in Christ. We need to just ask and trust him. Say, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Yes, Lord, I believe you want to go to work. Yes, Lord, I trust you in this situation. Yes, Lord, I'm weak and helpless, but you're not. Would you intervene in this situation? Because then in Christ, there are no limits. Because he's limitless. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is our Lord. So, what are some of the mountains in your life right now? What are those mountains for which you need to trust Christ and cry out to him and say, Lord, would you move these mountains? Do you believe that he is eternal and infinite and all-powerful and able and even willing to move those mountains? The disciples provide a good example for us this morning. They show a faith that is growing but still needs to grow. They will use all that God has given them, but they will use it. They need to learn to use it under the authority of Christ, under his lordship, guided by the spirit of God, and not for their short-term and earthly passions and desires. They need to learn, as we do day by day, to exercise faith in a great God and in nothing else. God has never failed anyone yet. And I am sure that he will never fail anyone. But he bids us come to him, put our trust in him, surrender our plans to him, say, yes, Lord, you know better, you see further, you have all power, you alone can do this. And so true faith in God makes for great optimists. While a missionary in Burma, Adirond Judson was arrested for his faith and put into prison and whipped regularly. He was made to lie in a foul jail with 32 pounds of chains wrapped around his ankles and his feet bound to a bamboo pole. And a fellow prisoner who was no Christian and took no pity on the cause of Judson, with a sneer on his face, spat out the question, Dr. Judson, what about the prospect of the conversion of the heathen? And Judson's reply was, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. What are the mountains in your life? And do you believe that the prospects of God are brighter and far more powerful than the mountains that you're facing? Years ago, I walked through a bookstore. I was just starting out in ministry and I was raising support and there were some days that were very discouraging. I walked into a bookstore and all I saw was the title of the book. And the title of the book was, Your God is Too Small. 
right there in the bookstore, not even reading the book, didn't even open the cover. I repented of my lack of faith and said, yes, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's been a lesson for me ever since. Is my God too small? Is your God too small? Is your faith too small? Or you have faith in a God that is too small? Do we really believe that God can do the impossible? Jesus said, for truly I say to you, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now next week, Jesus is going to remind us that we must suffer and die, that he must suffer and die. He'll show also that he is the true son of the king with the privileges that come with that. But until then, what are some lessons we can take from our passage today? Well, because we believe that Jesus is both Lord and merciful, we will approach him with reverence and yet present to him our needs. Prayer should never be the last resort, but always the first response. Where we bring our needs to the Lord and we trust him because he's the Lord and he's merciful. Secondly, because Jesus is the answer to all human needs, physical and spiritual, we, we need not fear to bring the needs of others to him, whatever they are. I've heard it said that the real tragedy in the Christian life is not unanswered prayer. It is unoffered prayer. Jesus is the answer to our needs. Thirdly, because we live in a faithless and twisted generation, we trust in the truth, capital T, the Lord to lead and guide us to live uprightly. And lastly, because Jesus calls us to faith in him, we place our trust in him to move the mountains in our lives. For truly I say to you, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of your ability and power and of our inability and weakness. And it is good for us to be reaffirmed and to know that is truth. So that we depend upon you, we lean upon you, we trust you. And so, Father, this week, would you draw and pull us and deeper into a loving embrace with you would you show us in new and fresh ways how trustworthy you are, how capable you are? And then, Father, would you remind us to confess our sins when we fall short of believing and trusting as we should? And we thank you that as we confess our sins, you remind us of our forgiveness in Christ. And would you refresh our hearts to arise from our knees of prayer to go out and walk obediently in what you've led us to do. And Father, help us to serve you this week, believing you for great and mighty things that will bring you glory, unending glory, and joy to your children. We want to serve you this coming week, Father, and each day that you give us until you bring us safely home to the shores of heaven. To that end, we pray for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.